This morning I'll be reading Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 through 29. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the men to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. And they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And he said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Lot, Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the, of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. 
There are some passages that you want to preach, and there are some passages that you need to preach. And this is one of those challenging passages. You know, when I was back in the early 90s, I went to uh, Israel on an academic trip with some professors and some students, and we went to see these different biblical sites. And uh, one of them was the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is just that. It's a dead sea. It's filled with minerals and high salinity content such that you can kind of just float. You don't even need to tread water or to paddle or to kick your feet. I have a picture of me reading the newspaper as I'm just kind of floating in this. But the Dead Sea is in a region that's desolate. It's just barren. It's a wasteland. There's nothing there. And it was here. This was the vicinity of one of God's greatest judgments in the Old Testament, the Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, they're almost, they're probably the most recognized city names in the Bible. I mean, they are a, kind of a, a, a byword for sin and judgment. It's a tragic story. The whole story is just tragic from start to finish, but it needs to be told. It needs to be understood. You know, we've shifted, as you could kind of tell, from Abraham, who's been the subject of all of these stories, to Lot. Now, remember, Lot is Abraham's nephew. He came out with Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. He traveled with him. He came into the land promised by God with him. He, uh, he grew in wealth with Abraham. And remember, he and Abraham, when they got to the land, that couldn't sustain both of their kind of their estates, and so Abraham deferred, and and we learned something quick about Lot in chapter 13, verse 12. It said he went towards Sodom, and even in chapter 13, we learn of the wickedness of Sodom, and he said he pitched his tents near Sodom. He moved there. Why? Because it was well watered. It was a good fertile valley. It was good for his personal estate. And so he moved towards Sodom. But then quickly we find that he moved in Sodom. Now in our passage, of course, we just read that he moved up in Sodom, right? He's now at the gate. He's a leader making decisions, a man of stature. You know, you you see this kind of no longer living in tents, now living in a home, establishing a residence, becoming a man of the city. Now hold him in contrast with Abraham. Abraham's still living in tents. Right? He's like the, the writer of Hebrews. He says in chapter 11, he says, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, living in tents, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham had his eyes still set for a city built by God, the city of God. And yet here is Lot, who's really pursuing the city of man. And their two lives will have two different destinies. It's a tragic story. It's almost like a Greek tragedy. So much potential, and yet Lot ends in such dark demise. Uh, so, so we do well to learn from this. We're going to kind of look at Lot's life just for a moment. You know, in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Paul speaks about these Old Testament characters are written for our example. They're for our instruction. Now, it, an example doesn't demand your attention. But it does bid you to look at him. And so we're going to look at this kind of tragic story in four parts. First, these angels are going to announce judgment. 
So judgment will be announced. That's the first kind of first scene in this play. And then secondly, we're going to see that, that God in mercy delivers from judgment. He does. God can deliver. And then thirdly, we see the reality of judgment. You know, the fire and the sulfur rain down. And then last, we're going to see the, the demise following judgment. That passage wasn't read uh, chapter, verses 30 to 38, and I'll read them when we, when we get there. Uh, but, but first, the announcement of judgment. Look back in the first verse, we see that there are two angels that are coming. Now remember, in chapter 18, these were two visitors. Uh, they were visiting Abraham. Uh, now he calls them what they are, which is angels. And they're coming to discern the outcry. Is Sodom and Gomorrah? Remember, God's a meticulous judge. He doesn't judge from a distance. I mean, he has eyes on the situation. These two angels are assessing the nature of the outcry. And I want you to notice something that can be missed. It says they came as darkness came. Now, in, in 18... Coming to the godly Abraham, they came at noon in the light of day. But here they come at night. It, kind of the spiritual metaphor reminding us of the moral darkness that is part of Sodom. And, and when they come, you see Lot, like his uncle Abraham, get up, run to them, meet them, bow to the ground, offer to have a feast, prepare a feast for them. But notice what he calls them. He calls them sirs it, it, plural he didn't see them when abraham saw them he said lord adonai he saw god coming but it seems as if lot's spiritual discerning kind of his awareness has been has been blunted has been dented by his life in sodom and so he doesn't recognize that these are heavenly messengers. So he prepares the feast. Well, you see what happens next. These men of the city come and they begin to want to, what it is is just homosexual rape. Look with me at four and five. He says, the men of the city surround the house, young and old, all the people, even to the last man. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. You see the outcry of the city is clear. They come, they surround the house. They want to know them. Now listen, the sins of Sodom are greater than just homosexuality. Uh, but clearly that is the focus in this passage. To, to know them, uh, obviously to know them can mean a cognitive knowledge. But it's also in scripture often used as a euphemism for sexual intercourse. For example, in Genesis 4.1, Adam knew his wife, Eve. She conceived and bore a son, Cain. But you even see in the text when he says, you can have my daughters, they have not known a man. In other words, they've been vir they're virgins. They haven't had intercourse. So this crowd from Sodom is wanting to bring their wickedness to these heavenly visitors. This idea of what their intentions are is picked up clearly in Jude 7. He says that Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities were likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. They serve as an example of undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So that's what we see, these men surrounding the city. But it's not just the nature of the sin that we're talking about. It's the extent of it. Looking for, he says, the men of the city, young and old, all the people, even to the last man. You see the totality of sin 
You see the comprehensiveness of their wickedness. This is the outcry that the angels are coming to discern, to know, to confirm. And we see it clearly here. Well, as they're there, of course, Lot goes out. He entreats them. Notice how he entreats them. Brothers, I encourage you, don't commit such wickedness. He's trying to prevent them. You know, here, social convention taking care of his guests is trumping his own care for his daughters. He says, take my two virgin daughters. It's a horrible scene, morally catastrophic. Well, they would have nothing of it. In fact, they accused him of being a judge. Don't we find this happens? You know, here, Lot moves with a morality in the face of wickedness, and quickly, those of, you know, those of wickedness want to bring out, are you judge over us now? So you see that they begin to press against Lot, and that's when the angels, of course, blind these men, pull Lot back in. The word for blind is dazzled. It's the same thing that happened to Paul. He can't see. But you see their lust is continuing as they continue to grope for the door. And this is when, of course, these angels announce the judgment. This is when Lot's eyes are open to these angelic visitors. He says in 13 and 14, we're about to destroy this place because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place for the Lord, Yahweh. Now he understands Yahweh is going to destroy the city, but he seemed to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. You know, you see, Lot had no spiritual gravitas, right? He, he warns of judgment. They think he's jesting. They're laughing at him. Remember now, the laughing has been in chapter 17, 18, and 19. This theme of laughter is going through here, reminding us they don't believe him. They don't believe that judgment's coming. So that's, that's kind of that first scene. The angels come and pronounce judgment's going to fall. Let me just stop here for a minute and, and give a couple takeaways for us to consider. Do, do you see the nature of compromise here? Uh, do you see the danger of it? This cultural accommodation. You know, you look at Lot. Lot is a mixed-up man. He's confused. He's living in two worlds. Do, do you see the, the hypocrisy he calls them out for, for moral wickedness because of homosexuality, rape, and yet he's offering his daughters in a heterosexual rape. I mean, do you see the inconsistency there? He calls them brothers. In what way were they brothers? Oh, they were not brothers in an ethnic sense. They surely weren't spiritual brothers. I mean, you, you see him offer his two daughters I mean, the value of women in his mind is reflected, using them as a bargaining chip for his own virtue of taking care of his guests. You see that his, his daughters were betrothed to two sodomite men that didn't share the same faith. I mean, you look at Lot. He had no moral influence. He had no, you know, Joseph and Daniel, they were in pagan cultures and they had an influence. Not so here. They called him out on it immediately. He was a man of the city, a man at the gate, a man of stature. They disregarded him immediately. He had no influence. I mean, you look at Lot, you just want to kick him to the curb. I mean, you just want to say, what kind of man are you? What kind of father are you? And yet, Peter calls him righteous. 
Three times in 2 Peter. He's called righteous Lot. Let me read it for you. If he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. You see, he calls them righteous three times. I mean, if he didn't say it, I wouldn't believe it. How, how do we make sense of this, this righteous lot? Well, you know, that righteousness, we were introduced to that word back in chapter 15, 6, if you remember. You know, that Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. There is a right standing with God that comes through faith that God will provide one who will deliver us from our own sin and the sinful world that we live in. Uh, that righteousness is a position that we have with God through the seed that was promised to Abraham, the son that would come, that would deliver us from the wilderness and bring us back to God. All our rightness rested on another one. And by faith, we're made right with God. So you have righteous lot. You know, Martin Luther talked about this. We are simultaneously justified in sinners. We're saints and sinners. We're saints positionally before God through faith. God looks at us as his children, and yet we know our lives, they're broken and they're torn up. This is why we don't have to hide our brokenness. It's clear all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's us. We're lot. We struggle with hypocrisy. We struggle with the inconsistencies in our life. We feel like we take two steps forward. Now, we don't let anybody know that. But here, righteous lot, given way to compromise, cultural accommodation. Before we just hold lot up as a poster child for problems, we should probably look at our own souls and say, where are the areas of hypocrisy in my life? You know, where am I willing to hold somebody guilty for moral infraction where I'm guilty over here, just a different infraction, or cultural accommodation? Have my views of marriage or parenting or the way I use my money or my business ethic in the marketplace, is that drawn from Scripture and from the, from the truth that God's given to me, or is it more, it's expedient? Hey, that's the way we do business here. Hey, if you want to get ahead, this is what you've got to do. So, so in what ways have we been kind of moving to this cultural accommodation? It's a warning for us. It's really an invitation to us, I think, to come and be honest with ourselves and God. Maybe this is, I'm a little closer to Lot than I think I am. Uh, but, but the second warning in the text is, let's not fall prey to this differentiation of sin. In other words, I know that when we come here, our hearts don't want to sit under conviction of the word. Uh, that's why people say, well, hey, Joe needed to hear that sermon. You know, that was a great sermon. Bill really needed to hear that. We don't want to feel the conviction of God's spirit. And so we come to a story like Lot. And, and the, the homosexual perversion related to it, we think, well, that's not my issue. And, and all of a sudden, we walk away feeling really good about ourselves. I just want to say, Sodom was filled with a lot more than just the example that we read in 19. In fact, in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet is chiding the nation of Israel in chapter 16. And he's chiding them over the sins of Sodom. In fact, he says, your sister Sodom. He's saying to the people of God, hey, you're related more to Sodom. 
He says these words. He says, behold, uh, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but they did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty, and they did an abomination before me, so I removed them. Do you see what he's saying here? It wasn't just the sexual perversion. They were haughty. They were proud. They were rich. They didn't care about the poor. Well, now it's starting to feel a little bit warmer in here. You know, all of a sudden now, that's why he removed them, not just for the sexual perversion. But we tend to we tend to differentiate. We have our own respectable sins that we're comfortable with. And these over here are really abominations, but, but these we've made a little bit of peace with. Let me just remind you, uh, the way God sees sin is different than the way we see sin. Now, some sins definitely have a greater societal impact, no doubt. But God sees sin different than we do. Uh, Paul picks this theme up in 1 Corinthians 6 when he says... Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. And we're like, okay, yeah, good, we don't do those. But how about thieves, the greedy, the drunkard, the reviler, the swindler? None of them inherit the kingdom of God. So it causes us to pause and say, and we begin to look at our own soul before God. So when we come to a passage like this, you know, the sins of Sodom were greater than just sexual perversion. They were greed. We're a wealthy nation. We have been given incredible opportunities by God to help the nations to serve. There are great injustices that are right around us. There are disenfranchised, marginalized, people that are broken, but they never break the barrier of our lives. So, so, so you begin to see the sins of Sodom aren't just that sexual perversion, but are much broader and wider and involve us to seek. This might be a place of repentance for us. It might be a place for us to scrutinize our lives a little bit more, take our, taking our own souls to task. And then last, there's a warning about judgment here. You see the way the sons respond, these sons-in-law of Lot, they respond to him. They're jesting. We tend to laugh over judgment. We read a passage like this, and we kind of we laugh over it. You know, Woody Allen had the famous line that, I'm not worried about dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens. You know, but he will be. He will be there when it happens. We can tend to joke it off, but these passages are really instructive for us. Now, I know it's hard to live like every day could be the last day. I know it's hard to live that way. But, but even James, you know, in the book of James, he doesn't discourage planning. He says, you know, he says, don't say, I'll go to this city and do this business for a year. He goes, you don't even know what tomorrow brings. He's not discouraging planning. He's just saying, don't presume live within the brevity of your life, live recognizing that we're creatures. So a big warning in this first section. Okay, jump with me to the second scene because we see now the deliverance enacted. Look with me back at 15 and 16. He says, as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. Please underline that one. The Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. So here's what happens. They're in the house. 
Morning is dawning, the sun is rising. This will be the last day for Sodom and Gomorrah. So the sun is beginning to rise, and they urge him to get up. But notice what the angels said. They said, lest you be swept away. Do you remember where you read that or heard that last? It was just back in chapter 18. It's when Abraham prayed. If they're righteous in the city, will you sweep them away? So the angels used the exact same words of Abraham's prayer to remind Lot, this is an answer, the narrator, Moses, wants us to see. This is an answer to, to Abraham's prayer. Abraham's prayer was answered. God was not sweeping them away because they were righteous through faith. But notice what happens. It says, but he lingered. Why would he linger? Did he not believe? Did he linger maybe because his life was there? His friends? His family, his assets, his house, his flocks, his herds, his pictures on his wall, his home, his reputation, everything he was and had was there, and he lingered. It says that the angels, based upon the compassion of God, seized him by the hand and drew him out and drew him out of the city. And do you remember what happened? He's going out of the city, and he's fatiguing. He's whimpering. He's saying, well, let me just go to Zoar. It just means little in Hebrew. Let me just go there. Zoar would be like a mini Sodom. It'd be like a little Sodom. You can tell Lot still had a love for Sodom in his soul. He wanted to go there. Maybe if the destruction isn't so bad, I can go back and pick up the pieces of my life and start over again. Not recognizing the incredible judgment that God was going to bring, that nothing would remain. Nothing of his former life. Yet he stays there. And isn't God patient with him? Enduring him in his immature, polluted, righteous state that he was in? And didn't he spare him, just like he said he would? If the righteous are there, I'll spare him, and he did. You know, it, 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 there's a warning again for us in terms of this idea of lingering. You know, clearly Lot had no taste for heaven. He had no longing for God. Hey, the things of his life were too significant, too important to him. They were too precious to him. He clung to them too tightly, and so he lingered at the risk of his own soul. And I think about the Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the Philippian church, I read this to you last week, he said that I desire to depart and be with the Lord. But on your account, on your account, I'm going to stay for the progress and joy of your faith. I wonder how many of us are ready to say that, that I desire to depart and be with the Lord. I mean, to be with the Lord, right? To be with the creator of all things, to be with the one who not just made us, but sent his son to save us. You know, the, the one that can speak and say, let there be light, and there's light. I mean, the, the one that has created the beauty that we marvel over, that, that's just, that's just a, a faint reflection of his glory. And yet, how many of us could say, I desire to depart and be with him? Most of us are thinking, well, I want to live a few more years. I mean, I got kids to raise, I got stuff to do, I got a career I'm developing, I went to school, I want to get... Do we even see what we're comparison? I, I mean, th this, this lingering is deadly to our soul. Friends, we have to pray, God, God give, me a, give me a taste for you. Let me see that there's nothing I desire on this earth besides you. 
that, that you are everything to me. That's not going to come by osmosis, folks. That's, that's going to come by hearts that say that I am. I'm thirsting after you. I'm hungering after you. I prayed that prayer this morning. I confessed. I don't always thirst after him. God, grant me taste buds for you, that you'd be better than all things. But, but are, you, are you also not impressed by the mercy of God and the salvation? The angel seized him by the hand. He took him. This is a picture of our salvation I want you to understand. It's a picture of God blew over your hesitancy to not trust his son. Right? God overwhelmed your will by taking out your heart of sin. We don't come to faith in Christ other than God's initiating grace, helping us get over that hump of selfishness or fear. I mean, you see, he lingered and they seized him and pulled him. God brings us oftentimes kicking and screaming into the kingdom. This ought to humble us, humble us that we're not smarter than those who have yet to come. No, we've just been graced. I mean, it leads us to a great humility and a great thankfulness to God. God, why were you so kind to me? We sang a couple weeks back, why am I a guest at your table? His mercy, his compassion. If you sit before me and you're thankful for Christ, that is his gift to you. It shows his kindness and his mercy and his patience with us to overwhelm us and to seize us for himself. We want to thank him for that. And we'll get to around the table. Thank him for seizing you. Okay, so that's the, that's the deliverance. But notice the reality, uh, the reality of judgment that falls in 23 to 26. He says, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Okay, this is, it's amazing the brevity with which he describes the judgment of everything in these cities. Now, someone explained, uh, this is probably an earthquake. Maybe a fissure happened in the ground. The, the gases underneath the surface were released, ignited the sulfur and petroleum you know, deposits that are there, and it was a gigantic firestorm. Others want to say it was an earthquake, right? It's uh, like a Pompeii, the molten lava and the ash. They just, in, they just incinerate everything. But, but the narrator won't let us go there. He says twice, he says, the Lord did this, and it came from heaven. We have precious few details other than God brought judgment on the wickedness of their sin. It's all we read. And then he shifts right to Lot, his wife, uh, that she looked back, and she became literally like ionized. She became a pillar of salt. And Josephus, by the way, uh, in the first century, speaks to the pillar of salt. So it wasn't just something that we've made up. It, it was understood then. She's a pillar of salt. What happened? Our, our, our minds are drawn to this, this idea of looking back. Now, did she just look back? I mean, is God that harsh that she just turned, looked back? Hey, I wonder what it looked like. And there's something more going on because she seemed to look back. I wonder if she turned back. And the reason I say that is because she tarried. The angel said, don't look back, don't tarry. But she must have tarried because it took a while for them to get Lot to Zoar. 
and she wasn't with him. And so she must have been waiting while he was getting to Zoar. Maybe she didn't just look back. Maybe she turned back. Maybe she went back. But her heart was clearly there. The, the, the love of that life she wasn't ready to let go of. It's interesting that, how do we understand this? Jesus helps us understand this passage because he quotes it. In Luke 17, he, he quotes this story uh, in relationship to his own coming, which will be a day of judgment as well. Uh, the distractedness of wealth and riches. You know, if you think about our lives, you know, we have material prosperity, we have luxury, we have comfort, we have medical aid, we have education. We really have life nice and to think about this coming judgment of Jesus. Let me read it for you. He says, as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on that day, when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is in the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. In other words, instruction to us to follow, remember his wife. Remember that she turned back. Remember that she became too infatuated in love with the things of this world. It's a clear warning in the context of when Jesus Christ returns, there will be a judgment a greater judgment of which Sodom and Gomorrah is only a faint picture of. And how easily we're going to be buying and selling, eating and drinking, building, harvesting, marrying. I mean, life will go on the same, and boom, it'll happen. It's a sober warning for us. We need one another. This is why we need the church. This is why we need to gather every week. We don't think this naturally. We have to be drawn to remind ourselves of these things. And you need to be reminding each other. Last week I quoted from Hebrews chapter 10, to not forsake gathering together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So as these days you know, as these days pass from one to another, this is our role for each other. This is how we help each other in this pilgrimage. Folks, we are pilgrims. We're not residents here. A lot, that's, that was Lot's mistake. Abraham got it right. We may not be living in tents, but we are pilgrims. It's amazing how Jesus says, and this is the warning for us to heed this. He says in Matthew 11, he says, and you, Capernaum, Will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. What he's saying here, and, and he's really saying it to us, that Jesus Christ says to Capernaum, a city in Israel, where he did works, and they did not receive him as the son of man who has come to seek and save the lost. They didn't receive him. And he's saying that it's going to be better for the folks in Sodom than it will be for you on that day. So this idea of being ambivalent to Jesus and his claim as being the son of man, there is no ambivalence here. 
I mean, if you're here and you're uncertain, please don't leave. Don't let the sun go down on this day without you asking a member of this church. Explain to me the importance of Jesus Christ. What makes him the son of man? What does it mean to receive him? What does it mean to believe in his name? What does it mean to follow him? Because Jesus uses this Sodom example, Sodom and Gomorrah as an example that it will, be, it will be better in that day than it will be for you in his day. And it will be his day because he'll come back in power and glory. So you see the warning here. Then look at the last act. and You can read with me, if you will, in chapter 19, verse 30. And he says this. This is the demise. This is following judgment. He says, now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old. And there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down, and when she arose the next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lay with him, lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of Ammonites to this day. This is a tragic end, just a tragic end. Awkward to even read it kind of in a context like this. And yet we see where his ruinous life led him. He was wealthy, man of stature, with Abraham, doing well, walking well. And look at the end. Sodom had never left his mind. He engages in a sin with his daughters that he had proposed the Sodomites do. He does the same thing. And his daughters were just as corrupt, taking a page out of Abraham's playbook about, hey, we're going to do it our way. We're going to take a shortcut and have sons through our father. The whole thing's a tragedy. This is why it's a Greek tragedy. It ends in just an incredible sadness over the event. And, and, and you see the, the nature of sin here. You see that sin is not in the city, and you go out to the country with the country folk, and you're less tempted to sin. Sin's within. And, and sin grows. It, it doesn't, it doesn't, it may start small. The compromise may be small, but it grows large. Philip reminded me of Spurgeon's sermon on this passage, which I read. And he, he just talks about little sins becoming big sins. And he uses the illustration of building a bridge over a river, one of those big suspension bridges. You know, and you shoot an arrow across the river with a thread, and the thread pulls the rope, and then the rope pulls the cable, and then more cables pull more and more cables. And before you know it, a bridge is being built. It's the nature of sin. And it has this generational impact. It isn't just, well, that's what I want to do. No, sin has collateral damage. The Moabites and the Ammonites, you know, they, they were forever 
against Israel. The Moabites, they introduced carnal seduction to Israel at Baal Peor in Numbers 25 that led them into great judgment with God. And the Ammonites, they led them into worship of Moloch and child sacrifice, a religious perversion. Uh, So you see that their sins had this reverberating effect. Uh, Folks, it reminds us that, that the trouble is here in our own souls. This is why we need to be born again. This is why God has to take out our heart of stone and put in our heart of flesh. We need God to change us. Moral reformation, educational reformation, that's not going to change us. We need God to change us. Did you realize that both Noah and Lot were delivered from judgment? And do you realize that they were delivered from judgment on a people that they then committed the same sins after judgment? So they were delivered, they got into the wine, and committed the same sins that the people did for which they were judged. Lot and Noah. You you see the darkness of sin. And yet you see the you see the light of God in even working through our sin. Do you realize that out of the Moabites came a woman named Ruth? And do you realize that Ruth was the wife of Boaz? And they produced their grandson, their great-grandson, was David, through whom the seed, the Messiah, would come. So you see, even through Lot, God is working, even in his brokenness. It's an incredible God that we have, that he would save those who brought great sin, but he saved, he brought the son from them to enter the mess that they've created to save us. This is the incredible, this is why the table, you know, I thought, Lord, you brought the table on Sodom and Gomorrah. Thought, what am I going to do with it? But you know, I started thinking the grittiness of the sin and the kind of the awkwardness of this passage demands the grittiness of a cross. The, the sin is so heinous, it needs something almost equally so glorious to remind us that us lots, we can come to this table because one has come and his body has been broken for us. His, his blood has been shed for us, that we can come to what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross is enough. It's enough that, that we can come. We come as righteous, not, not without sin. No, our righteousness is an alien righteousness. That's what the older theologians would call it, an alien righteousness. It's a foreign righteousness. Our rightness before God by which we come to this table is through the one that we celebrate at the table. Uh, So the broken body and the shed blood was and is what makes us righteous, that we can be called children of God and that we can enjoy this messianic banquet, this picture of the banquet that we'll have. So, so folks, the, 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 just the, you look at this passage and you, you feel like you almost feel sullied And then you look at this table, and from the mess, God brought one to deliver us to himself, cleansed, forgiven, and made right with him. So friends, before we come, let's just take a moment and just bow our heads and consider God's grace in Jesus Christ, who came through the line of Lot that we might be saved 
and then I'll pray for us in just a moment.